We are continuing our journey through the, the book of Hebrews. And I'm trying to get the zipper to work and <laughs> I get it open. Um, we are in Hebrews 9. And we got through verse 14 last week, so we're going to pick things up in verse 15. Today we're going to look at Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 24. So if you get a chance, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 9. And this is really a continuation of where we left off last week. It reads this. Therefore he, he being Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Since a, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it discover that they have in this Jesus a mediator who stands in for them. Have you ever had a moment in life where you just wish stuff double in a movie, someone who, who would do all of your dirty work, letting you off the hook. Maybe, maybe you had a test that you didn't study for in school, and you just wish that someone else would just take that test for you. Or perhaps you were speeding, and the cop pulled you over. And, and you wish that he would have just targeted that other car that was going just as fast. Whatever the situation, we, we all have those moments, do we not? Where, where we just wish that it was it was someone else in our shoes. Where, where we wish that we had a substitute. So that, that, that we wouldn't have to face the music. So that we wouldn't have to, have to live with our own failures. There's this idea of a, of a substitute that our author wants to deal with today. 
we, we have been going through this book of Hebrews for some time now, and, and we have seen that the, the major theme that is interwoven throughout this book is that Jesus is better. And the reason that our author is making this argument is because his audience, those whom he is writing to, were Jews that had converted to the Christian faith, and they were undergoing intense persecution. And many of their friends had already left the faith. Many of them had gone back to their Jewish roots. And so there was this strong temptation on their part to follow suit. To, to leave Christ behind and follow that safer path. And yet to do so would have been foolish. To do so would have been eternally dangerous. For Jesus truly is better. Better than their former ways. And over the past few weeks, we have seen this in spades, have we not? We, we have seen that, that, that Jesus is this better high priest, for he is constantly before his Father, interceding for us. And we have also seen that, that, that he entered into a better tabernacle with, with a better blood offering, an offering that can actually cleanse the conscience. And we have seen as well that, that, that he has offered to us a better covenant, a covenant that's built on better promises than the old covenant ever had offered. And it is, it is a theme of a, a better covenant that our author picks up on again today. Only this time he is focusing on, on this covenant's inauguration. On what it took, or rather who it took to ratify such a covenant. That word inauguration, I mean, we think about inaugurations, right? Inaugurations. The inauguration of a president comes to mind. This big ceremony. And so, you know, the president, he doesn't become president when he gets elected, right? When does he become president? At the inauguration. You know, typically he lays his hand on a Bible, he swears an oath that he's going to uphold. Keep that in mind as we go through this passage. Look at, look at Hebrews 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is, a, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, so, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, if you remember from last week, the, the argument that our author had just made was that this blood of Jesus is able to cleanse the conscience of a sinner and allow that sinner entrance into that heavenly tabernacle, that, the heavenly throne room of God. And so because of this blood, because it can cleanse the conscience, Jesus has proven to be this better mediator of this new and better covenant. Now what does our author mean when he says that Christ is our mediator? What is a mediator? Earlier this year, uh, Major League Baseball was threatened with a strike. I don't know if you guys follow sports at all, uh, but there was, there was a threat that we wouldn't have a season. 
There were disputes between the players and the owners. And, and so unless they could work it out, they weren't going to play baseball. And that's where a mediator comes into play, right? That, that's where there's this need for a, a person who would act as an arbiter or, or a go-between. Someone who would meet with both sides in an effort to form a compromise. And, and so this guy, he, he would go to the players first and ask them what it was that they wanted. And then he, he would deliver that message to the owners, and, and they in turn, uh, and then in turn he would ask them what they were willing to concede. And, and so there would be this back and forth, back and forth, until finally they, they, they found some sort of middle, middle ground. And so the owners, they would have to give up more than they originally wanted. And the players, they'd have to take less than what they truly desired. And so there was this give and take on the part of both sides. And yet because of this mediator's presence, because of his hard work, both parties signed a new contract and the season was saved, right? And we had baseball once again. <laughs> now the, this example that I just gave is our modern way of thinking about mediator. It, it's, it's kind of a diluted way of thinking of a mediator. For when the Bible speaks about a mediator, it's speaking about something a little bit different. For when it comes to God, there is no middle ground. When it comes to his justice, when it, when it comes to his requirements for salvation, God does not compromise. And so when the author of Hebrews states that, that Christ is our mediator, he is not talking about Jesus finding some middle way, some, some, some common ground in order for man to be saved, as if God should somehow lower his standards, you know, just as long as man tries to tries a little bit harder, right? No. That's not what Jesus did. Rather, when our author speaks of Jesus being our mediator, he is saying that, that this Jesus has decided that he himself would meet salvation's requirements in our place. That he would be our substitute. Here's the thing you got to understand. Christ, he's in agreement with the Father about our sinful state. Christ is in agreement with the Father about the just wrath that should be poured out for our sins. Christ is in agreement with the Father about the necessity of a sacrifice. And Christ is in agreement with the Father that these animal sacrifices that were taking place under the old covenant would not do. And that there was a need for a true substitute. That, my friends, that is what is meant when our author says that Christ is our mediator. For it means that Jesus had, had, has agreed that he's going to be that substitute. It means that even though he is God, he decided to become a man in order to represent us and pay the penalty that we deserve. And it is in this way that he is a, this mediator of a new covenant. 
Now let me remind you once again that this new covenant is different than the old covenant. The, the, that old covenant, remember, was a conditional covenant. The new is not. The new is an unconditional covenant. And, and what I mean by that is that, is that the old covenant, it, it was tit for tat. It was quid pro quo. Both parties were under obligations towards the other. If you do this, then I'll do that. But, but under the new covenant, all of the promises, all of the stipulations are placed upon one party and not two. God is the one who not only makes the promises, but he fulfills them as well. And what does our author say? He, he says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And so we see that it is God who not only calls a people to himself, but he then fulfills the promise of granting to this people an eternal inheritance. What a great word. Eternal Ponder that. What does that mean? Think about that. So how does God do this? How, how, how does he mediate this better covenant? Through a death that redeems. Through, through blood that was shed upon his own cross. It was through the sacrifice that Jesus made when he, when he paid that penalty for our sins that, that we can enter into this new covenant and receive this eternal inheritance. His position as our mediator was established through his own death, through his own blood. And it is this necessity of this death that our author now focuses upon. And, and, and he will bring forth three examples to drive home this point. Look at, look at verses 16 and 17 where we find this first example. It reads this. For where, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Before Kim and I moved to Thailand, we, when we were missionaries over there, before we moved there, we had a will made out, just in case, right? Just in case something happened to us. And in that will, we, we had left an inheritance to our two daughters. Well, since that time, we've had two more children. And so our will had to be changed. It had to be adjusted. And the reason we could change it was because that original will that we made out had not taken effect. And why hadn't it taken effect? We're still alive, right? We didn't die. Just like a will, this new covenant that Christ is a mediator of it needs to be inaugurated by a death. For it was based upon 
the wrath of God and, and God's justice being satisfied. And the only way that that could be accomplished was by the means of a sacrifice. That means that, that, that if Christ had not died, that eternal inheritance, it would not come into effect. I mean, suppose that Christ had chosen to stay alive. Suppose he had chosen to not go to that cross. Then that eternal inheritance would not be available to those who are called. And that is because just like a will, a death was necessary in order to inaugurate this covenant. But our author draws upon another comparison where death was necessary. And that comparison is the, the inauguration of the old covenant. Look at, look at verses 18 through 20. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. When our family finally moved to Thailand, we had to adjust to certain things that seemed to us strange. Certain customs, certain ways of life. And one of those strange things was going to the market. You see, we would go to these street markets in order to buy fresh fruit and, and vegetables. But there was always a certain section of these markets that, that Kim, in particular, tried to avoid. And that was the meat market. She described it as an assault on the senses. Let me give you a description. These, these sellers, they, they, they would have these tables, and they would spread out these tables, all their meat, and it was just a blood mess. And in fact, there, were, there was so much blood that the, that blood would be dripping onto the concrete floors. And since this was an outdoor market, and it's Thailand, and it's hot, think about that. The, the stench from this meat was overwhelming. And this drew a, a host of flies. And even though they had these fans that they would use, they would, they would stick these things on these fans. Uh, it's almost like fly swatters, but they weren't fly swatters. And they would spin right over the meat, thinking that that would keep those flies away. The flies were still there. <laughs> Needless to say, my, my wife, she just didn't have the stomach for it. We, in America, we live in a society that has learned to sterilize everything. Places that should be the bloodiest, such as hospitals, they're as clean as a whistle. And heaven forbid, should we get the tiniest of cuts and, and not put a band-aid over it, covering it up. Give little kids, you know what I'm talking about. You know, for, for, for sanitary purposes, these things that we now do, they're good, right? They, they protect us. But they do one other thing. They, they conceal from us what for thousands of years was commonplace. 
That blood is a part of our fallen creation. That death is all around us. Blood signifies pain. Blood signifies hurt. Blood signifies death. It tells us that not everything is right in this world. And when we read our Bibles, it seems that it, it seems that it's as if blood is dripping from every page. You see, God, he, he, he wants us to know about death. He wants us to dwell upon it and to think deeply about it. Yet we like to sterilize everything, do we not? It's got to be clean. It's got to be nice. God wants us to ponder the messiness of this fallen creation. Now when the old covenant was established between Israel and Yahweh, what did God have Moses do? He sprinkled the blood on the people on the book of the covenant, right? He, he wanted the people not only to see the blood, but he wanted them to feel it, to, to smell it. He wanted them to hear the, the cries of the, the animals as their throats were being slit. What, what is described in these verses is basically a summary of Exodus 24. Look at, look at, look at verses 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. He then took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Here we see another inauguration, do we not? The inauguration of this old covenant where we see this slaughter of many, many animals. I mean, the blood is flowing. In fact, it, it flowed so much that the text tells us that Moses filled basins with it. And what do you do with that blood? He took half of it and he threw it on the people. Now think about that for a moment. It's estimated that there were roughly 2 million people that were with Moses at this time. How much blood is needed to sprinkle 2 million people? How many oxen had to be slaughtered? And that's only half the blood. What did he do with the other half? He, he took the other half and he tossed it onto the altar. In other words, this whole process was a bloody mess. 
But why was this done? Why, why was there this need for all this blood? Because that was the way that covenants were made back in the days of Moses. There needed to be a death. There needed to be blood. And in a way, these oxen, these sacrificial animals represented the lives of those who were to be held accountable. And so the, the deaths of these animals represented what would happen to that person if he or she failed to live up what was agreed upon. For the penalty of breaking a covenant with God was death. And that is why this blood was splattered upon the people. Because they had agreed to obey all the, all the words that the Lord had spoken. They were swearing an oath by their own lives. But remember, this, this old covenant was a conditional covenant. And so both parties had stipulations. The people had promised to obey, and God had promised to bless their obedience. And so this is where we see the other half of the being poured out on the altar. This bloody altar was God's way of communicating to his people that he too would be faithful. That he too would, would, would stand firm on the stipulations of this covenant. And that is why there was this blood. For it was under the specter of death that this old covenant was inaugurated. But there's one more comparison that our author wants to make. One more uh, example to demonstrate that, that as our mediator, Jesus needed to die. And that comparison was the purification of the vessels within the tabernacle of God. Look at, look at verses Back at Hebrews 9, verses 21 and 22. In the same, and in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As I said before, the Bible is a bloody, bloody book. Well, we saw this last week when we looked at the Day of Atonement, right? And the sprinkling of the blood upon the Ark of the Covenant. And that was just one example of what our author is now talking about. Another example is in Exodus 29, when, when God wanted to consecrate his priests. In order to do this, he had them take, take blood and spread it on the altar of the Lord. Look at, look at Exodus 29, verses 10 through 12. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And, on, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. You see, if these priests wanted to serve their God... They needed to be purified. And thus a death was necessary. For they were sinful men, representing a sinful people before a holy God. And, and it is only through the blood of a sacrifice that these men could be purified. 
For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now you may be thinking to yourself, how can blood purify anything? What, I mean, wouldn't water work better? I mean, blood stains, water rinses out, right? Water can clean the outside of a man, but it is only blood that can clean the inside. Think of it this way. Sin demands justice. And what is the just penalty for sins? It's death, right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And so if death is the penalty, then a life must be taken. You must have a substitute. And that's what those animal sacrifices represented. A life for a life. And that is why under the law, under that old covenant, everything was purified with blood. But these things are just examples, are they not? Foreshadows, if you will, of the real thing. For as we've seen before, that old covenant, it could not accomplish what God truly desires, which is reconciliation, which is peace between God and man. And thus a new covenant had to be inaugurated. Look back at our passage. Look at verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves would better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Amen. You see, just as there was inauguration of this old covenant, so too there needed to be an inauguration of the new covenant. And this is what we see described in these two verses, this establishment of this new covenant. And there are three things that our author is, is highlighting about this inauguration. And the first is that, is that it happened at a better location. And this, this is why we see... That, that the blood that would ratify this covenant was brought into the heavenly tabernacle and was used to purify heavenly things. You see, under the old covenant, the, the blood was used to purify earthly things, things that were only copies. But under the new, the blood is used to purify the original. Those things that are in heaven above, in the true tabernacle of God. And so this new covenant is established in a better sanctuary, where God is fully present in his full glory. Two, our author tells us that this new covenant was inaugurated by a better by better blood. For the blood that was spilled, it wasn't the blood of calves and goats. No. Rather, it was the very blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ, when he died for our sins upon that cross. And so this blood 
It represents a true life-for-life sacrifice. For this blood of Jesus, it, it truly is the only blood that has the power to purify. It is a better blood. Three. Not only was it Jesus' blood that, that, that purified these heavenly things, but that blood was brought into that heavenly tabernacle by Jesus himself. And this takes us full circle to where we began. For we see that this new covenant was inaugurated by a better mediator. Let me ask you, who was it that acted as a mediator during the inauguration of that old who, who was the go-between between God and man? Well, it was Moses, right? I mean, after all, it was he who sprinkled the blood upon the people. And, and it was he who poured out the rest of the blood on the altar. And so in a sense, it was Moses who stood between God and man. And yet, in the inauguration of this new covenant, we have a better mediator than Moses. For we have Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. We have the only one who can satisfy God's justice. We have the only one who can propitiate God's wrath. We have the only one who can truly stand in as our substitute when we need it the most. For he has come into the presence of his Father on our behalf. And he creates peace with God. A peace that leads to an eternal inheritance. Think about that word again. Eternal inheritance. What does that mean? What does that mean? Eternal. It doesn't end. It's always there. It's constant. It's secure. It won't go away. Inheritance is God's blessing to us. He gives to us his kingdom. He gives to us himself. God is our treasure. Dear friends, if you have repentant faith in Jesus Christ, if you have turned from your sins, and if, if you have believed in his death, in his blood, that it has the power to purify you, then you, my friends, you have entered into this covenant with him. And that is good news. For you have received an eternal inheritance. Not you will receive, you have received. For the death has already occurred. And the blood has already been spilt. And nothing more is needed. In just a few moments, we will be taking communion with one another. And in this sacred act that our Lord established with his disciples, it, it is a means of recalling the covenant that we have with 
For every time you eat the bread, every time you drink the wine, you are remembering his death. For the, the bread, it represents his beaten body. The body that was nailed to that cross. And the wine represents the blood that, that poured forth from his wounds. And so I, I want to invite you. I invite all those who profess a sincere faith in Jesus Christ, those who are living according to his word and with a clear conscience, to, to join me in partaking of this covenant meal. But if you are not a believer, if you have not entered into this covenant relationship with, with Jesus, then we ask that you do not take part. And it's not that we don't like you, but, but this is meant to be only for those who have entered into that covenant, who have entered into that saving relationship with their Lord and Savior. So, I'm going to take a moment to pray. And when I am done praying, I want you to come forward and, and we will, I don't know if this is opened up yet, let's open it up. Come forward and grab the bread, grab the wine, and then we will take it together if you find your seat. Let, let's pray. Father, we are so, so grateful to you for what your son did for us. That he is our better mediator. That he, he stood in as our substitute in a place where we should be. And as we, as we take communion together, as we take the bread and we take the wine, help us to reflect upon this. Help us to remember that's this why you established this. So we could remember what it is you did for us. The pain, the suffering, the judgment, it's all taken away because of what you did for us. And so as we take this, instill that within our hearts. Give us faith to believe this message. In Jesus' name.